if people could see Earth from up here, see it without those borders, see it without any differences in race or religion, they would have a completely different perspective. Because when you see it from that angle, you can't think about your home or your country. All you can see is one Earth. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Matt, who said that? I don't know. That's what I was going to ask you. Well, I'm throwing it back at you. I mean, surely you know. I'm going to have a guess that it's um, not not an actual astronaut, but a commercial astronaut. Correct. Nice. Is it Anushi Ansari? Oh, my God. It's almost like it's written down. (laughs) It's Anushi Ansari. That's a genius Uh, quote, though, isn't it? Because we've got an astronaut of the week who's a bit like Ansari Mm -hmm. in the fact that they weren't a pro a pro astronaut. No. But very, very exciting, nonetheless. Nonetheless. Right, we cannot do today's podcast no. without mentioning what, Jamie? Well, without mentioning Apollo 7, Matt. 50 years ago. Today? To mo- well, well, tomorrow, today, technically. Well, technically, we record. But when this body comes out, yeah. October the 11th, 50 years ago. Incredible. Two minutes past three in the afternoon, UTC. 1968. <sighs> A Saturn 1B, not a Saturn 5, although, did you know that the Apollo 8 Saturn 5 was on a launch pad just in the background of some of the pictures of, of the launch? I didn't know that. So they were getting that ready while this one went up to do its 10-day, 20-hour mission. What? And we talked about old Walter M. Shearer. We did. Before, on Podcast 49, although we kept we called him Shearer, I believe. Yeah. And we're, we were corrected that it's Shearer. Well, standard. Yes, Shearer, Isil, and Cunningham were the three people on Apollo 7. So that was a mission. What a mission. It was a hell of a mission. Uh, but I'm sure lots and lots of other podcasts and, and YouTube channels will be covering it. Yeah, but they're so, not like us, are they, Matt? No. Eh? So I want to look at another one that happened 10 years ago to the day was a launch to the International Space Station of TMA-13. And do you know who it was? Uh, I'm going to say Richard Allen Garriott. <laughs> <laughs> can't believe you know his middle name. <laughs> Indeed, Richard Allen G- Garriott. Do you know what? He's, he, he, um... Born 4th of July, 1961. Yep. That Richard. That Richard Garriott, okay. yes. Mm-hmm. Richard Garriott de Cailloux. Or sometimes known as... Lord British. And we'll Why get, was he called well, Lord well, we'll British? Get onto, we'll get onto that in a, in, into a minute. Oh. But old Dickie Garriott was yeah. born in Cambridge, the son of American parents, Helen and Owen. And do you know who Owen Garriott was? No. He was one of the very first NASA scientist astronauts who flew on Skylab 3 and STS-9 space shuttle. That's some good DNA. You think, ooh, I wonder if he's the first offspring of an astronaut to also be an astronaut but we'll now, get on we'll get on to that in a minute now that's a stat yeah that is a stat isn't it but we'll see we'll see as the story unfolds we'll see. so garriott wasn't an astronaut even though his dad was do you know what he what he ended up doing with his life teletype programming my goodness yeah 
So when he was at school, he managed to convince his school to to let him do teletype programming. And he, while at school, uh, designed 28 fantasy computer games based on Lord, of the, on Lord of the Rings and Dungeons and Dragons. I love that. Proper nerdy stuff. Do you stuff. remember uh, the cartoon Dungeons and Dragons? Yeah. How good was that? Not only do I remember it, but I've got your box set of Dungeons and Dragons. What? Yeah, I know. Isn't that weird? You need to give that back. Yeah, I know. Don't know. Oh, my God. I may have binned it. Who knows? It, that's quite nerdy, isn't it? It's like it's, it's, really it's very much like... Um, Tell you who he's a bit like. He's a bit like Wallowitz from um, The Big Bang Theory. Yeah, yeah, he's kind of on that level. Yeah, yeah, like nerdy D&D fan who ends up being an astronaut. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so he's called Lord British because that's one of his characters in his computer games. But he, he's nicknamed British, not because he was born in Britain, mm. but because, which he was, but because when people said hello to him on the University of Oklahoma campus, mm. he would say, hello, Instead of hi, which is, of course, the more American uh, sort of way of saying it. Okay. So they thought it was funny to call him British, even though he had a Texan accent, because he went back to America at a very, very young age. Right. Yeah. Him and his family, close family, including his father, set up Origin Systems to publish his game Ultima, which uh, went on to become absolutely massive. And EA Games... Wow, that yeah. is bought, bought Origin pretty huge for thirty million dollars in nineteen ninety two. Snippet. And Garriott is the person that uh, coined the phrase "massively multiplayer online role playing game." Just rolls off the tongue. A memorable, <laughs> an MMORPG. Oh, that's one of my favourite. Yeah, well, RPGs. Uh, he invented it. He invented the whole phrase, uh, and he was working on a Harry Potter version when EA cancelled it, so he thought, right, I'm leaving. So he left, and um, he used the money that he'd made to buy a seat via Space Adventures. Ooh. So Space Adventures, they're, they're quite an interesting company. They're hmm. the first space tourism company founded by Eric C. Anderson, and Garrett's now the vice chairman, by the way, of the board, to become the first private citizen to fly to space. But do you know what happened? What happened, Matt? The, the dot the dot com bubble. Don't say that. Yeah, the dot. It's a different com- website altogether. <laughs> the dot com bubble burst. Right. <laughs> it's even better. The dot com bubble burst. Yeah. And he was to, and he was forced to sell his seat to a guy called Dennis Tito. Tito, I like his name. So, and then he returned to gaming to to make enough money to so he could put down a deposit for his actual flight. But he'd miss being the first uh, commercial space person, right? Yeah. But then they discovered he had a hemangioma Oof. or hemangioma of his li- on his liver. Now hemangiomas are quite common. They are babies getting them like little strawberry birthmarks. But he had one on his liver, which if there was a depressurization event, yeah, which is actually quite likely in a Soyuz. Uh huh. Um, well, not quite likely, but it's you know it's certainly a scenario. Yeah. Um, he would suffer from internal bleeding and bleed to death. Oof. So he had to make a choice, and so he took life-threatening surgery so he didn't lose his deposit. And after paying thirty million dollars, he was to go into space carrying a sixteen-inch scar yes. from said surgery. I love this guy. He was the second American space tourist. He was the second second-generation astronaut, second to Sergei Volkov. Oh, Sergei, getting in there first. And he was the second person to wear the Union flag. 
And the first was? Helen Sharman, of course. Co correct. So he was the second Brit in space. And the Metro, you know the Metro that we've mm -hmm. you, that you get on the tube here, claimed that it was the first newspaper in space as they were part of an outreach programme to British school children. Really? So, yes, he took, okay. a, he took the Metro up with him. He actually flew back on a Soyuz TMA-12 with Sergei Volkov, the man who'd beaten him, to be the first second-generation astronaut. Do you reckon the atmosphere was a little frosty? Oh, so I think he's how just close must it be? So he came pretty close. So Volkov, yeah, yeah Volkov is the first um, second-generation astronaut. I don't know much about Volkov, so we'll have to revisit him on another. Astronaut of the week. Well, he sounds pretty tenacious, Mr. Garriott. Well, no, there's some really cool facts about Richard Garriott, other than that he invented massive multiplayer online games. Yeah. He also became the first person to oversee a wedding in zero gravity. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, he, so he is the official on G-Force One, operated by... Zero Gravity Corporation. Oh, so someone got married on a vomit comet. Yeah, and he was, and he was the 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 priest. Okay, because you can you can get that stuff online, can't you? Yeah, he basically. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, in 2010, he released a documentary called "Man on a Mission: Richard Garriott's Road to the Stars," which I have not seen. We need to check that out. Tracy Hickman wrote a screenplay for Richard Garriott, and so on board the uh, ISS, he filmed the first science fiction film what? shot in space called "Apogee of Fear." I like that. So, <laughs> so yes, yeah, so somewhere there is a film. Uh, that Garriott filmed in space called Apogee of Fear. Again, I haven't seen it, so we'll just have to... Wasn't that your first EP as well? Yeah, well, it's uh, it was the second song on the... B-side. Yeah, B-side <laughs> from my first single. This one's Apogee of Fear. You yeah. must be Surbiton. <laughs> it's where the riff comes from. Apogee of Fear. Oh, yeah, baby space. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, strange facts about Richard Here Garriott. We go. His high school teacher was June Scobie Rogers, who was wife of Challenger Shuttle Commander Dick Scobie, who piloted the doomed Challenger STS 51. Oh, really? Uh, I think he then went on to uh, help her with various charities. Okay. Um, Garriott bought the Lunar 21 Lander and the Lunacod 2 Rover, which are both still on the lunar surface, right? Okay. And he bought those for $68,500, which is an absolute bargain, Not but get this. So Garriott notes that while the UN treaties ban governmental ownership of property off Earth, corporations and private citizens retain those rights. Oh. So he's, he thinks that Lunacod 2, which is still working, its mirrors are used to bounce back lasers so you can measure accurately how far the moon is away from the Earth, uh -huh. which is pretty cool, right? So Garriott claims property rights to the territory surveyed by Lunacod 2. And it actually might be the first valid claim for private ownership of extraterrestrial territory. That is insane. I love and, that. And, and just so you know how big an area Lunacod has covered, it's it held the distance record until... Opportunity Rover beat it in 2014. The, the same opportunity that now may be lifeless on the Mars. Oh, shiver my timbers. Richard Garriott was also a corner man for one of your favourite sports, the professional boxing. Ah, uh, what? Yeah. And friend 
Jesus. Jesus Chavez. Yes, Jesus Chavez in his first titled events against Eric Morales, which I actually remember that. I actually yeah. remember that fight, bizarrely. Uh, he's also an avid magician, which of course he is because he's an absolute nerd, which actually makes him like Wallowitz off the Big Bang Theory yeah, exactly, still. So, in fact, it's almost exactly the same. Garrett received an honorary doctorate from Queen Mary University in London in 2011. Tick. But here's a really cool one. Richard's wife is Letitia Garriott de Keo. What a name. Yes. Uh, she grew up in France and Hong Kong, and she worked in London for a while. And and actually has completed some of the NASA training, including... Uh, well, sorry, not NASA training, the cosmonaut training. Yeah. Including um, completing the na uh, natural buoyancy cosmonaut training. Oh, Matt, do you remember when we saw the natural buoyancy pool? Yeah, in, uh, in, yeah, in, in Cologne. Um, she was the president and COO, chief operating officer, uh -huh. of Escape Dynamics, which is a really... Well, was, actually. It's shut down now because they didn't quite get enough funding. But it's a really interesting concept about getting a space plane into space. Basically, they got round the specific impulse problem. Yeah. Uh, go back to the space word of the week a few weeks ago. Basically, if you've got a high enough specific impulse at launch, yeah. you should be able to do single stage to orbit but most fuels just don't have that specific impulse with the with the rocket engine or the tanks are too large to contain it so it kind of scuppers you but this was firing microwaves at the space rocket to sort of give it that extra bit of energy so the specific impulse went up which meant that you could actually have a single stage to orbit space plane that sounds like one of those experiments you do at school firing microwaves Mm -hmm. I don't even know what you're talking about there. <laughs> Sorry, I got the giggles. Yes, but I don't even know what you're talking about. No, the kind of experiment you were I'm doing really tired. Firing microwaves. <clears throat> I meant proper microwaves, as in cooking microwaves. Right, Matt. you might. You I was might, just being. I was I just being a, as a rock star, being, you might chuck a microwave out of yeah. a hotel window. I was being very silly. You were being basically. silly. You are a shocker. This guy's amazing, though, isn't he? I know. How Incredible. cool is that? Dickie Garriott. Maybe we should get him on. We should. We should try and get him, get him on. on. We should... Do you know what the space word of the week is, Jamie, before we go on to Hell the Hell yeah, I do. Go on, then. It's only Vernia. Yeah, it is Vernia. How did you know that? Well, because I know it, Matt, because, you know, obviously a Vernia thruster is a rocket engine mm -hmm. used on a spacecraft for fine adjustments to the attitude, not altitude, no, Matt, you, attitude. You've got a bad attitude. <laughs> you've got a bad attitude or velocity of a spacecraft. Maybe if I, maybe if I attach vernier motors to you, it would adjust your bad attitude. Good luck with that. Okay. So, yeah, do you know it gets its name from? It's quite a cute little name, this. So, vernier was a... Uh, Pierre Vernier mm -hmm. was a... A toolmaker in, in some ways, a scientist, you know, they you know, multi-talented kind of people like uh -huh. they were back then. In 1631, he came up with a, a way of kind of, and you've seen it, you know when you've got calipers? Yeah. And you put them together and you've got like a major scale which shows you like the, the sort of gross measurement, say uh -huh. like two centimetres. Then you've got a smaller scale and you line up the lines and it te tells you how many millimetres it is exactly. Oh. And that's called a vernier scale. And you see yeah. it on quite a few measuring tools. And it's really, really useful. It's on my telescope, for example. There's a little vernier scale on my telescope. Uh, oh. And it's very, very useful. So vernier scale means the second more precise scale. So a vernier engine 
is obviously uh, used for second is a secondary engine that's more precise. So Got it. that's where it gets its name from. How cool is that? Oh, I like that. So yeah, may simply be a smaller thruster complementing the main propulsion system. So that's just like the Soyuz that's still taking off to this day. Each booster has got two, and the core has got four. So there's twelve little vernier motors mm -hmm. on the bottom of the Soyuz, and of course they they, they help keep the Soyuz going in the right direction. Yes, help with the attitude. That's it. Stop the terrible Russian attitude. Stop of that Soyuz. the attitude. Stop the attitude. They may actually be part of a larger larger attitude control system. So the Atlas and the Delta early deltas mm -hmm. had vernier engines that kind of helped with things like making them roll mm -hmm. and do those kind of things uh, but also maybe part of a reaction control system so the space shuttle had vernier engines the vrcs the vernier reaction control system and that was often used if the space shuttle was docked to the international space station yeah if you burnt those vernier engines for say 30 minutes you could raise the iss orbit by about 10 miles. Not bad. Not bad, eh? They've become less and less used these days. More, a bit old-fashioned now. A bit old-fashioned, and you can use gimbals and sort of better rocket te technologies come out. Mm. So, obviously, they're still popular with, with the Russians because the Russians are still using basically everything that they came up with in the <laughs> 60s yeah. and not much else. But the Vernier was almost called the Nonius. What? Yeah, because Nonius... Pedro Nunes invented a very similar measurement thing on a circular instrument called the Astrolab or the Astrolabe. That was kind of absorbed into the whole Vernier system, it, but it was called the Nonius scale right up until the 18th oh. century. So it, they could have been easily have called Nonius thrusters instead of Vernier thrusters. I so, prefer yeah. Vernier. Definitely. Just saying. Let's have some space news, Matt. NASA confirms delays, Matt, to mm. the first crewed launches from US soil since 2011. Oh, no, this is deeply depressing. Yeah, it is. The widely expected delay was announced in a statement from NASA. So SpaceX's first uncrewed test flight of its Crew Dragon spacecraft will be delayed from December 2018 to January 2019. Not too long. That's not too bad, is it? And then we'll get... It's literally a month, Matt. Yeah, then there's going to be a crew. Yeah, but it's been it's been massively delayed. This was supposed to be happening like two or three years ago. Uh, but the crewed flight is going to be in June 2019. Mm. So yes, back from uh, push back from April. Even worse for Boeing, whose whose test flight unmanned test flight is going to be March 2019. Oh, yeah. And then they're not even going to fly crew until August 2019. Come on, Boeing. Uh, so the, Shake a leg. So the phrase is, Boeing are ahead on paperwork, <laughs> SpaceX are ahead on hardware. Yeah. That's the, that's the phrase. They need to get together, don't they? Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mascot mm -hmm. lasted one hour longer than planned. So it jumped from three locations, took lots of different measurements. I think it was supposed to last 12 hours, but lasted 13 hours. So it used its camera, infrared spectrometer, a magnometer or a magtometer, or a magnetometer. <laughs> we'll take one of them. Yeah. Uh, and a radiometer to measure stuff going on on the, on the surface of Ryugu. Huge. And that is actually quite huge. Yeah. It's, that'd be really interesting to see how many science papers are written from that little jaunt. Agreed. What's going on with uh, uh, arrivals and returns from the International Space Station? 
Well, Matt, NASA's astronauts Drew Feustel and Ricky Arnold. Ricky! Ricky! <laughs> and cosmonaut Oleg Artemyev of the Russian space agency Roscosmos landed at 7.44 a.m. Uh, or 5.44, Matt, p.m., as I know that you like to run by Kazakhstan time. Exactly. Uh, southeast of the remote town of Zegstagan in Kazakhstan. Space station crew returns to Earth. So Exo Moon, Exo Moon, Exo Moon. Some very very cool researchers have used NASA's Hubble Space Telescope. Mm -hmm. This is actually a follow up from uh, from a year ago. So uh, a year ago, Kepler Space Telescope had had got a bit of data that seemed to suggest there may be an Exo Moon oh. uh, that's orbiting a uh, a planet three times bigger than Jupiter, or three times m as massive than Jupiter. That's big, That's because big. Jupiter's big. Jupiter's big. So a Jovian planet, three times the mass as Jupiter, has a moon the size of Uranus, to avoid us Good. laughing. Good, And um, And that moon has been detected by Kepler. They've used uh, NASA's Hubble Space Telescope to follow up, and it really looks like there is a moon that's circling only 8,000 light years away in the Cygnus constellation. It's going to require some more follow-up Hubble observations. But here's the bad news this oh. week. This is... It's you not had to as, build me up to knock me down, didn't you? No, but it's not, it's not as bad as, as Twitter would have you believe. Oh, it's always so, not as bad. So, yeah, Hubble has yeah. gone into safe mode. Oh. Oosh. Which is never good, and it's because one of its gyros have failed. So it's actually running on not so many gyros. It needs gyros to be able to point really, really accurately at a star and keep it level and still right. while it takes very, very long exposures. It's not a surprise that that gyro went because it's one of the older ones that's been exhibiting end-of-life behaviour for about a year. Mm -hmm. NASA are going to begin operating the telescope on a single gyroscope with another working gyroscope they're going to hold in reserve. So, so one of the gyroscopes are going to stop using it so that uh, Hubble's just on the one gyroscope and keep the other one, so when it. that one fails, right. that one fires up. But there's also a more modern type of gyroscope that started failing, which they switched off mm. a long time ago, and they might try and get that one working again. So if they Scary can get that stuff, one... stuff, isn't it? Because yes. it's so far away. Well, that it's, that's it. What can you do? Can't just say, bro, bring it into the garage. And remember, once James Webb flies, all the money will have to go into yeah. James Webb. So... It's very, very unlikely oh, that Hubble, Hubble, will, Hubble will ever be rescued. Will we see James Webb Telescope in space, Matt, soon? Well, hope so. 2021. Let's just hope. Okay, okay. Uh, well, it has to. It has to go now. We've spent like billions and 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 billions on it. Okay, so, quiet yes. time. <laughs> so... Here's a really cool thing about this James Webb telescope is yeah. that we'll see many more of those moons uh, orbiting, many more exomoons with James Webb. Matt. That's no moon. That's no moon. <laughs> How did you know I was going to say that? Because it's too, because yeah. you're too, you're too, so it's just like too I'm reading you like a book. Too bloody obvious. Uh, uh, <laughs> so uh, the only thing about James Webb, uh, Jamie, is it won't take such pretty pictures. Why? No, because it doesn't really work in optical. <sighs> So it's not going to be um, as good. This is the coolest news of the week. Well, sort of. Coolest news Could of be, the potentially week. Potentially coolest news of the week. So Richard Branson oh, says... 
says that Virgin Galactic will be in space in the next few weeks. Weeks. Not months. Weeks. Mind you, he could mean 52 weeks, couldn't he? So Branson himself said he's going in months, but they will be in weeks. Yeah. Well, we'll see. And We've I heard it before, but let's see. call that Richard Branson going into space. That is, you've got to admit, that is really cool. And that reminds me of when I was a kid, when Richard Branson used to do all the the balloon things across the Atlantic and stuff, like daring stuff with Pierre Lindstrom and people like that. Yeah, it's, fair, oh, it's I mean, fair play to him for what he's doing in that realm. Yeah, so, yeah, Virgin Galactic, that's pretty exciting, isn't it? It's really exciting. So, Jamie, what I want to know is what happened in the IAC 2018, the International Astronautical Congress. Well, this... hey, Matt, I mean, whilst I could tell you, I think we should leave it up to one of our favourite people in the world ever. Oh, I tell you, yeah, we could. We could. Our California girl. Shall we Skype Harriet? Harriet Brettel. Let's Skype the Harriet. Do, 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 do. Good day. Roll it. Okay, listeners, we are joined by our regular... Californian, but English, Matt, mm-hmm. correspondent. It's a bit like Richard Garriott. Yeah. Well, it's Harriet Brettel. Harriet, thank you for joining us again. Oh, it's great to be here, guys. Now, we know you've got a bit of a cold. How are you over there, despite that? Uh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Thank you. I think all the travelling's caught up with me, and now my body's like, just, just stay in one place for one week, please. I know. Yeah, this is the thing. It's kind of annoyed at you. It must be hard to recover from a cold in California, though. Yeah, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? You don't really expect to have a cold out here, but I'm, I'm drinking lots of tea, so it's all oh, good. good. Actual tea or what Americans call tea, which is some now, abomination. Now, Twining's <laughs> Earl Grey. It's been shipped over from England. I've got like a thousand tea bags here. It's ridiculous. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. Yeah. Now, Harriet, we want to talk to you about uh, the IAC 2018. Oh, yes, what a week. It was wonderful just wonderful how does it all start so when you arrived in bremen yeah what happened so i actually went to bremen a few days early because i was attending the space generation congress so this is a three-day workshop that the space generation advisory council puts on right before iac Uh, so for those of you who, who are listeners who haven't heard of sgac before we're a Global organization with 13,000 members plus all around the world in over 150 countries. And essentially, we support students and young professionals between the ages of 18 and 35 connect to the wider space industry. So we organize these events all around the world. And the big kind of flagship event that we put on is the Space Generation Congress. So it's kind of like a mini IAC. We had about 150 students and young professionals come together. We had speakers from all different walks of the space world, you know, ESA, NASA, uh, Lockheed Martin, um, a whole host of others. And we also had a number of different workshop themes. So I was in the Space Commercialization Working Group, which was sponsored by the German space agency DLR. So throughout the course of those three days, we had a subgroup of about 15 of us who were really narrowing down on some of the key issues and challenges associated with commercializing the space industry, what that's going to look like going forward and what some of the opportunities to to make viable space businesses in the future might look like. So that was the first kind of few days, which was a, wow. so, a lot of fun. So before the IAC even started, you were absolutely knackered from the SGC. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So one of the highlights of uh, the Space Generation Congress is the we have an intercultural night, which is 
I think it's the first night of the event, actually, where basically because all of the delegates come from all around the world, um, each group of people from each country does like a little skit presentation in the evening to everyone else. So we had just this fantastic evening of um, Austrians doing like their traditional Austrian dance. We had the Americans all in their baseball jerseys doing like an American quiz the British didn't plan very well. We we went for like a, <laughs> as you might expect, we went for a we were for a James Bond theme, so we were all dressed up really suave. <laughs> but we bought some royal family masks at the airport. Oh wow! And oh yeah, it was great fun. So we just that that was our uh, showcase of. I think uh, we, we should we should get some photos from you to put them on the blog. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've got photos. The more yeah, embarrassing, no, the better, please. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so yeah, so it was a really fantastic, you know, just an example of, you know, you put 150 space enthusiasts in one room for three days and it was so inspiring to see the, the kind of discussions that came out of those three days and the ideas and the, the policy recommendations. SGAC is actually a, has permanent observer status with the UN's Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. So all of the findings from our workshops will be fed into a presentation that will be um uh, sent to the to sent to the UN later this year which is pretty cool. Did you know that yeah that you know the outer space treaty is 50 years old today? Oh is it today? Yeah. I oh, know 51. <laughs> it's fi- no it's 51. Oh. oh come on. It's 51. Yeah. It's 51 today. That's not bad though, is it? That's not bad. No. Was there any particular topic of conversation that you really remember and go wow that that's that's absolutely amazing was there one that really stood out oh gosh that's a great question so maybe something that stood out that was really interesting was traditionally we have a set number of assigned working groups but this year we had an extra one which was called bridging the space divide and essentially the purpose of that was the group was discussing how do you collaborate across borders because at the end of the day space is an inherently global endeavor, but we still deal with these kind of restrictions of, of national boundaries, national security, and all those kind of challenges. And it was really kind of inspiring and encouraging to see how well thought through the, the working group presented their ideas at the end of the workshop. And kind of encouraging to see, you know, this next generation of space leaders being incredibly committed to global cooperation in the future is definitely the one thing that you really get from the space community mm-hmm. is the, is that international collaboration i've not been to one single event where your nationhood gets in the way in 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 a, in a way like it's a place yeah. where the where the russians and the americans and and the germans and everything everyone else all get on is that's that- so true yeah. and harriet who would you say is apart from the british and the uh, americans who which country would you say is kind of uh, shining a light on, um, you know, just being innovate, innovative in uh, in this industry? That's a really good question. So I'm going to name two countries that have really kind of put their foot forward over the last few years. The first is Luxembourg. Oh. So I don't know if you've heard the – in the last few years, Luxembourg has really been strengthening out its um, legislation around asteroid mining mining and rights on this is jamie's favorite the asteroid mining. i love it yeah luxembourg are really queuing up for that aren't they 
They are, and they're pumping a huge amount of money into investing in in companies that want to drive that technology forward, which is pretty exciting. So they're really paving the way, not just in terms of funding, but also thinking about what the legislation is that a company or country will need in order to be able to actually utilize resources in space, which is incredibly important. Well, the Outer Space Treaty slightly gets in the way, doesn't it? Aren't they pushing for some kind of amendment of it? Yeah, so I can't remember exactly what it says, but from from my understanding of the way that it's been interpreted, it's something to do with you can't own anything that is in space, but you can use the resources. So let's say you land on an asteroid. You don't have the right to that asteroid. You can't claim that it is yours, but you can mine it for water or platinum or whatever it is that you want to bring back from that. So you can use the resources, but you can't claim ownership of the 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 property so yeah which which isn't great is it if you're if you're spending billions to land on an asteroid for someone else to mm. land on the other side <laughs> and start yeah. mining it away who and so so luxembourg yeah or agree yeah that's a, that's a trailblazer who else yeah um japan yes. so japan yeah the japanese <laughs> government recently announced a I think it's a $1 billion space fund or something like huge investment into into the the space industry. And we're really seeing it now. There's a number of really exciting space companies that are cropping up or have been, you know, are kind of going strong, very, very well funded coming out mm. of Japan. One is iSpace, which is a, um, they're planning to launch a commercial lunar lander on the surface of the moon within the next few years. Anyone who watched our 100th podcast will have seen a little picture that looks very, very cool. It's based on Apollo technology, apparently. Yeah, it's really interesting. They've got some commercial partners as well. I'm I'm going to get the car company wrong, but they're so I won't name one in the in the <laughs> risk of of giving yeah. out the wrong one. But they're teaming up with a a car company, which is helping them, you know, with the technology design of the wheels. They they're partnering up with a lot of different, you know, Japanese funding to to make it happen. So that's really exciting. And then another one, another exciting company out of Japan, which again is very, very well funded right now is Astroscale. So Astroscale is a, I, I guess you could say startup, but they're trying to solve the problem of um, debris in space, space rubbish. Mm-hmm. And so what their, their plan is, is to uh, create a kind of plate that you can attach to satellites before they launch. And so once the satellite is in orbit and you want to bring it back down, you have a device that you can then launch, which will attach to that plate on the satellite and drag it back in. Uh, to get broken up in the Earth's atmosphere. So that's a really cool idea of, you know, solving one of those big problems that the space industry is really going to have to solve when we think about the number of satellites that we're putting up. That means that was, that was awesome in Japanese, guys. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I thought that was like a little kid interrupting us. No, I just hopped onto <laughs> Google Translate. I just wanted to throw it out there. Um, uh, yeah, I, Japanese have been really, really great recently presumably you've been following hayabusa too oh my goodness isn't it extraordinary amazing yeah so cool <laughs> it's just been just brilliant. incredible yeah absolutely you, you've only gone and double whammed it so now you've got <laughs> so now you start at the iac how does yeah. that start does that start with a oh, big ceremony and everything it you know what it did start with a giant ceremony and it was incredible so they had the bremen philharmonic orchestra opened Whoa. up 
with this incredible concerto. So it was a giant um, auditorium, doesn't make it sound big enough, this huge kind of room where they kind of filled it with this incredible music. They had this wonderfully, I, I don't know, the, the, the host for the for the opening ceremony was this incredibly animated and energetic American woman. She was absolutely fantastic. And they had a number of, you know, the kind of formal introductions by uh, dignitaries at the event, you know, the uh, vice president of the IAF, the uh, leader of the organizing committee that, that is hosting the event, the, the chairwoman of the German Space Agency, DLR, uh, all these kind of formal things. And then they finished up. So the theme of the IAC this year was involving everyone, which was really nice kind of touch. And they kind of highlighted the fact that IAC has brought together people from a huge host of countries, you know, coming into this one event. And they really emphasize this kind of international, but also involving literally everyone, you know, the public. There was a public day where anyone from Bremen and beyond could come into the exhibit hall and see what was going on, which was really nice. Um so there was a really kind of positive theme running through the event. And then they finished with a another piece that the orchestra, I think, was was premiering. And it included like little nods to 2001 Space Odyssey, which was really cool. So they started off with the classic, you know, do, 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 do. Um, <laughs> Strauss. Uh, yeah, it was fantastic. Um, and then they had some performers kind of, choreographed to the music as well which was great so that awesome. kind of kicked it off it was kind of weird to see that concert at 9 a.m in the morning you yeah, know because you're in this room and then it's like this evening extravaganza and then you go outside and it's it's 10 30 in the morning and you need a cup of coffee and hit the rest of the day but yeah, it was fantastic a strange time that's incredible though mm-hmm. yeah the, the germans do orchestral music rather well as well they they did it very very well it was it was wonderful yeah, got a bit of heritage there. Yeah. What was the first talk that you went to? You know what? I'm not exactly sure. The problem was I was wearing a number of different hats during this IAC. So one, I was I was going, you know, just as a, a space enthusiast, wanting to get as much out of it as I personally could. Two, I, I lead strategic partnerships for the Space Generation Advisory Council, the organization that put on the three-day event before IAC. So I spent a lot of time meeting with companies and p- potential partners and sponsors to help support the work that we do throughout the year. So that took up a lot of time, but it was really, really great, you know, to see the level of support that organizations across the space industry have for students and young professionals. So that was that was great. Um, and then also I had a couple of talks myself. So you know what? I think actually the first talk I went to was me. talking about the planetary society in london (laughs) oh wow nice oh actually do you know what i saw a picture of that and i could see a picture of myself on the banner so i actually made i did so i I did make it to the iac there you go jamie didn't know you and your ego (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i think you'd have to be quite eagle-eyed to have spotted it never mind yeah and how were the reactions from your talks it was really encouraging, actually. So yeah. so the first talk I did was uh, basically, you know, lessons learned from setting up an outreach program in London with the Planetary Society. As you know, we organized Space Up in 2017. Mm-hmm. The group's still going strong. So it was really nice to 
kind of showcase some of the work we did. Bill Nye was in the audience as well, so ah, it was really nice for him to nice. see a little bit of what we'd done in London. So yeah, it was it was really good. In fact, you yeah. presumably you got to meet Bill Nye. You, you kind of let his London his London representative go without a little chat. No, yeah, we we it was funny because so I've been volunteering for the Planetary Society for two years now, and this is actually the first time that we met. But it was really nice to cross paths and speak to a couple of other people at Planetary Society HQ and, and check in about all the things that they're doing. So they're a really fantastic organisation, and I'm I'm very proud to be. A part well, of we it. had Kate down for our show, didn't we, Matt? Yep. Talking about yep. Lunaris. Oh yes, because she was on the um, analog mission. That's wasn't right. She? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was great. I mean, you know, because you weren't around, so you know, so, yeah, you abandoned us. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> had too many other important things to do, like the IAC forward slash. Oh. We were too scared to call you on Skype <laughs> for technical difficulties. Yeah, actually, yeah, we should we should say that you did actually volunteer. That you yeah. Would you would come on so you know next time next time yeah. when you guys do your 200th episodes live then yeah. then I'll, I'll be there in, in one form it's or another a terrifying thought that's 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 going to be i think september 2020 so we may oh, wow yeah so, good maths matt thanks uh well it's about 100 weeks isn't it over the few days over the few days mm-hmm. what was your absolute favoritist talk Ah, uh, so you know what? It probably wasn't necessarily the talks, the formal talks themselves. I think it was more the personal interactions that you get because one of the things I think is fantastic about the space industry, I'm not sure if this is true of, the, of, of other industries as well, but it's certainly true of space, is that everyone is incredibly personable and incredibly warm, open and and friendly. So I got to sit in on a on a lunchtime session with Jim Bridenstein, the administrator for for NASA. Mm-hmm. I had a lunchtime meeting with a bunch of ESA students with Jan Warner, who's the director general of the European Space Agency. Um, I got to spend time speaking with people from Blue Origin and Lockheed Martin and a whole host of uh, people from different kind of small space companies out of the US, the UK, Europe, all across the world, and really just getting a sense of of what everyone is doing and, and kind of walking around the exhibit hall, finding things that were interesting that I'd never heard about. I think, honestly, that was more of a highlight for me. Well, what, what were the uh, Blue Origin lot like? Oh, they're great fun. Yeah, absolutely. So they they don't have a like a stand at the exhibit hall, but um, they're big they're big supporters of the Space Generation Advisory Council. So one of the one of the Blue Origin employees sits on our board. One is a previous executive director of SGAC. So we have a kind of a, a great relationship with those guys. And did you presume were any of the British? launch people there like orbex or the spaceport cornwall or any of those yeah so there was a uk pavilion which was lovely nice so there are a nice few little british flags around and as soon as i saw them i'd be like you know (laughs) like my home home country um and yeah it was fantastic so i think that was organized by the bis so kudos to them so there was the uk space agency was there clyde space Skyrora was there, which is one of the mm-hmm. the UK launch uh, future providers. I think that's fair to say. Um, so yeah, no, it was really great, fantastic to see a kind of breadth of different um, 
space companies coming out of the UK and also speaking to a lot of different European companies who are bringing their, and actually not just European, international as well, who are starting to bring offices to the UK, particularly Harwell, to um, make the most of the opportunities that are coming out of the, the UK right now, which is very exciting. Yeah, it has to be said, it is a very exciting time for commercial space. But also, I actually genuinely think that the the UK have actually really picked up on it. It actually genuinely seems like there is actual Mm. um, government interest in it. Tangible, isn't it? Which has not really happened before, bizarrely. No, absolutely. And there seems to be a really kind of, there's a real commitment from the UK government to make space a success story particularly in light of Brexit, but also, you know, just showcasing that this really can be a pillar of the UK economy, given the potential for the launch market, the small satellite market, just general space industry going forward, it's only going to grow. Um, And so there's a huge investment in terms of facilities and funding and uh, infrastructure to to really uh, make that a reality in more than just words, which is really encouraging. Yeah, in, I suppose in that respect, we've been a little bit like Luxembourg, haven't we, where we've been put, <laughs> putting through quite a lot of legislation as well to try and make sure that we've got all our ducks in a row. Well, yeah, absolutely. And if you think about, you know, the the UK space spaceports, I was speaking to someone from the UK Space Agency and they were saying, you know, that regulation can really act as an enabler in the sense that, if you're looking at where you want to launch your rockets from, you don't want to go to a country that's got no legislation because they could turn around in a few years and, and change the game and put you out of business. You really want to go to a, company, a country that has got a kind of well thought through plan and, and can kind of support your business going forward. And I think that's what the UK is trying to do with the, the spaceport legislation and initial funding is to kind of open up that platform to commercial companies um, and see where it can go from there, which is really exciting. That is really exciting. incredible. God, we, I really wish I was there. That sounds like <laughs> such a great event. So close, close us off then, Harriet. How did it all wrap up? Well, you know what? The last day was probably a little bit of an anticlimax because we've been going strong for about 10 days by that point. Oh, my God. And honestly, I really just wanted to sleep. <laughs> mm, yeah. So the last day, what did I do? I think I had a couple of meetings in the morning, did a last like whiz round the exhibit hall. So I don't know if I mentioned this, but with IAC, there's a giant exhibit hall where all the big companies and all the small companies as well have little stands where you can go and speak to their representatives about what they're doing. They have drinks reception start from about 3 p.m. every day. So there's this whole kind of, you know, scurry of people going from one drinks reception to the other. Um, and so I spent the last day doing a, doing a final round, seeing if there were any final pens or space pins that I could pick up to, <laughs> to bring back. Yeah, yeah. I'm, an, I'm an avid collector of space pins. I got some really good ones this time. I'm, I was very happy. <laughs> That's where ours went. <laughs> but yeah, we should actually do an interplanetary podcast pin. Oh, my God, yeah. you should. That would, be, that would be awesome, guys. Yeah, yeah I, right. I'm, get, I'm on it. Matt, we already have enough trouble getting friends without doing a pin. <laughs> Do you think no, this is wise? Bring you friends. You reckon? Yeah, we, you reckon? Friends. If it brings us friends like Harriet, then then I'm in. You old See, smoothie. Yeah, I think you're you're basically Jamie. You're thinking of the old people. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, Harriet, what's exciting coming up for you in the next few months? 
Oh man. So I landed back in California two, two days ago now and immediately got a cold, which yeah. I think was my body saying, slow down. Enough. 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 So yeah. So for the next few weeks, I'm trying to getting back into my research. I had my qualifying exam right before I left for IAC, which I thankfully passed. So now I've actually Congrats. got to go and do the work. Thank you. Thank you. So now it's following up with the research. I've got a conference in knoxville tennessee at the end of october nice so that's the division for planetary science so i'm i'm presenting a poster on the work that i've been doing doing observations of europa's atmosphere so i've got to i've got to whip that into shape in the next few <laughs> weeks and then go over there and, and present it amazing very exciting well that is all lovely stuff well we should we should do this again <laughs> in a few months time Yes, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, keep us posted. Will do, will do. Thanks very much. Well, it's a pleasure to chat with you guys as always. And you know what? The IAC is going to be in Washington, D.C. next year, so start saving up because that's going to be... I know. Uh, we, have to, we have to go because, uh, yeah, it would be genius. We, we're going to have to look happen. at that one. We're going to have to look at that one, Jamie. Okay, Harriet, I'm, I'm going to leave you with this. Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean, Jamie? <laughs> that says, thanks, Harriet. You rule. <laughs> so there we go. Yeah, I can't help feeling that Google Translate's not going to. I'm sure we'll well get someone that. correcting us. It probably <laughs> wonder means what like we're actually at said. You're a ruler, or something. Yeah, or, yeah. You can measure things. Or something. <laughs> I will find out from my lovely Japanese colleagues if that was actually the case. Um, but Harriet, thank you so much for your time. Hope you get better. Get some rest. Oh, um, have some. Guys. Get some liquids. Matt, any tips on cold? My my tips on a cold is drink lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of water, but okay. not so much that you get rid of all your electrolytes. So just don't listen to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. not a doctor. Do just you know you know how to get I'll, rid of a cold. I'll, yeah, I'll 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 just man up. It'll be fine. To be fair, when Jamie and I walked round Estec, that was like one day. I was so knackered to do yeah. it for ten days is is it's insane. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it really is a marathon, not a sprint, you know. You yeah. really do have to um, uh, plan out the week. Otherwise, you just crash very early on. Well, you look after yourself. Get well soon. And Thanks, we'll catch up uh, on the flip side. Yeah. Super soon. Sounds awesome. Okay, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Love speaking to Harriet, Jamie. She's so great, isn't she's she? The, she's the bestest of the best. Cheers, Harriet. Um, please, guys, give her a follow on Twitter. Do you want to hear my space fact? Go on. I absolutely love this story, Jamie. I'd not, I'd not, I didn't know anything about it. If I don't love it, I'm leaving. Okay. Ready? Yeah. There's a supernova called the Refsdal. You have my which, interest. Yes, which is sometimes known as the Groundhog Day supernova. It feels like you've told me this fact before. <laughs> Good. Well, I have in an alternate universe, Ooh. or maybe I have in a in in actual fact. Weird, really weirdly, there may be a galaxy with a powerful enough telescope that can see us having this conversation several times. Ooh. And I'll tell, I'll explain. Okay, carry on. Supernova Refsdal is the first detected multiply lensed supernova. <laughs> so it's visible within the field of the galaxy cluster. Max J1149 plus 2223, and was given its nickname in honour of the Norwegian astrophysicist Sjö Refsdal, 
who in 1964 first proposed using time-delayed images from lens supernova to study the expansion of the universe. Wow. So, so these observations were made using the Hubble Space Telescope, which is why I suddenly found it. So, nine, let me tell you the story. Here we go. Nine billion years ago. Nine billion years ago, Jamie. Yeah. So that's about as far away as we can possibly see. Yeah. A star blew up. It did. And it was picked up by the Hubble Space Telescope. But get this. Gravity from the intermediary galaxies. So there's galaxies, massive galaxies, in between us and that supernova. And they've bent the light in such a way that there's multiple images of it. So Einstein predicted this would happen. And there's one, there's one type of bending. Because often you get like a smearing. So, it right. doesn't, so it's like smeared image. But there is one type called the Einstein cross. Mm. And that's exactly what's happened here. So this Einstein cross means that you can see this supernova in four different places. So the original observation from Hubble was this supernova happening in four different positions. But because of the way that the light is bent, some of them take longer to get to us than others. Right. Right? So you can see the supernova happening at different times. So it's like a sort of time Whoa. capsule version of it. Patrick Kelly from the University of California was the person that discovered it. Mm. And he predicted that you would see more versions of this supernova later on what and you know what they did so how many are we talking here so after the four images had faded away about a year later the supernova Refstal reappeared somewhere between mid-november 2015 and december the 11th right uh the reason why you, they don't know roughly is because of the because the way that hubble's actually taking pictures as predicted you've got another picture of this supernova. And using that time delay, they've been able to infer the value of the Hubble constant. In what? other words, how quickly the universe is expanding. And so they've actually used what Revstel predicted you could use to get this Hubble constant. That's genius. Yeah, and um, but what's even weirder than that is because the expansion of the universe... It's so like it's going so fast at that point, and and that galaxy is going away from us at an incredible rate. Mm. So the clock on that particular galaxy is obviously massively dilated. So they're running much slower than our clock relative to us. This Correct. is Einstein's relativity. A two-month point of view on the supernova last six months on earth so we're not only are we seeing like in different times but we're seeing it stretched out in time as well the whole event stretched out in time i love the quote from um the 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 article that i read that says a star might die only once but with einstein's telescope if you know where to look you can watch it scream forever now that's a quote did you like the story, Jamie? I absolutely loved it. I'm staying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's incredible, isn't it? Is, it? it is. It, there's, everything about that story is amazing, isn't it? So people could be looking at us, Matt, four different time zones, six different time yeah, zones. But in fact, yeah, if there, if there was a huge galaxy between us and somewhere like 15 
billion light years away, say, then, yeah, I mean, theoretically, you'd have to have a ridiculous telescope. But, but yeah, you could see you as a baby, you as a teenager, you as a, an adult, and you as an old man. Oh, well, I'm getting there. Yeah. Can you hey, Matt, yeah. that is amazing. Do you want to know what else is amazing? Yeah. Ask me what a star is. What's a star? Matt, a star is something that goes through the process of nuclear fusion, <laughs> which means that it emits light and heat by very, very active hydrogen atoms banging into each other to create helium. That's nuclear fusion for you. Just thought I'd tell you that I just read up about stars. Uh, Jamie, ask me what a star is. Matt, what's a star? A star is a person who goes to our Patreon page. Oh, good. Carry on. <laughs> and uh, decides that they're going to help us with the show. Because do we get paid to do this from any advertising companies? We, we absolutely don't. This is all what? done. What? This is free? This is free. I, I know I've been saying I was going to pay you, but <laughs> oh, for the last three years, it, it's, it's all on, been a lie. Stick it on my tab. <laughs> stick it, just stick it on my tab, Jamie. It's fine. Yeah. Matt, if I also want to go to iTunes and give a five-star review of this podcast so other people can find it more easily, how do I do that? You just go to www.interplanetary.org.uk. That's interplanetary.org.uk. Did he say .org.uk? You better believe it. I did. It exists. It, it does. Interplanetary.com was taken. Not we were too lazy. It was just taken. Don't go to yeah. interplanetary.com or just literally type in the Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space into Google. And you, like us, will no longer kiss regularly. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I've got a new catchphrase yeah? from one of our patrons, Nick Canning. Oh, Big Nick, yeah. What's big, he saying? The Big Nick. He texts me frantically to let me know that he'd come up with a catchphrase that was the interplanetary oh. podcast because the sky is, is no, no longer, longer the limit. limit i really like that yeah i like it too cheers nick that's that's brilliant if you have a catchphrase mm. let us know yeah do it no profanities please we don't swear on this show do we Matt? jamie franklin putting the ass into podcast <laughs> Right, bye bye, Spodcat. Bye, everyone.